Well, good morning, church. If I've never met you before, my name is Brian. I'm the, the pastor here at Trinity City Church. A uh, couple things to highlight before I pray and we get into the sermon series and the text. Uh, the big announcement is the sermon series. We're kicking off a new one called A Wonderful Life. We have more information about that sermon series and why, uh, why we're doing this sermon series, what it's a little bit more about on our website. If you go to our website and just read the journal page, it goes into detail. In fact, there's a, about a 15-minute interview that our pastoral resident David does with me uh, to highlight why this sermon series, what it's all about, who's the voice behind it. Uh, what I'll just say um, in terms of a, a preface to the sermon, the, the main voice behind uh, this sermon series is a theologian named Herman Bovink. He's a dead theologian, but he's a, he's a bit of a mentor to me the last decade or so. I go into details why I think his voice is relevant uh, for our current moment, but uh, this church plant uh, is really a reflection of uh, his voice over the last 10 years and other voices as well. And I go into detail why I think that is a significant uh, person to, to listen to, to lean into. But uh, I preface the sermon uh, mentioning him because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. I mean, this, this sermon series really is just dripping with his influence and, and paraphrasing a lot of his words. If I do quote him directly, which won't happen much in terms of direct quotes, I will I'll attribute that to him. But just know, like, his voice is very, very dominant behind this series. It's a 10-week series. Uh, the first four Sundays, we're going to be ref reflecting on more foundational elements of uh, a theological vision that's grounded in, in God the Father's creation and his purposes for us, uh, and that he calls us to restore this ruined creation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we participate with the power of the Holy Spirit in his renewing work to this day. And after those four, first kind of four foundations, the next uh, five sermons are going to look at applying this theological framework to all of life and some of the specific areas of life that we're going to look at is the life of the church, uh, ongoing relationships and daily relationships, uh, our vocation and our work, culture and public life. Uh, and we will uh, go into each of those areas in light of this grand vision of what a wonderful life is. So more details on the background are at the website. I encourage you to go there, listen to it, and, and get some more specifics if you're curious to know a little bit more about what's influencing this sermon series. Let's pray and let's dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for some folks that may... Uh, be back in, in church, in person, uh, for the first time in a long time. And I pray, Lord, that this uh, embodiment of worship uh, ministers to them. Thank you so much, Lord, that you're about to speak and you're about to reveal yourself. We carry so many of our distractions, our burdens, um, our anxieties into this space because of um, our ministry in the world. And Lord, we want to be reminded of you, what's true, what's beautiful, and what's full of grace by hearing what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The sermon title of this series, uh, A Wonderful Life, does not get its uh, name from the Christmas movie, but many of you I know are probably thinking about the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I was not going to even mention that uh, Christmas movie uh, because of the confusion, but actually it's going to give me a little bit of a, a way to frame this first uh, sermon by giving an overview of that movie and really what the storyline uh, is and how it ends. So I don't know 
How many of you have seen this movie? It's, I, I, for most of my life, I did not see this movie. My wife is really into older films, and she had me watch it. I enjoyed it. And, and for many of you, this is, this is a great open door to start celebrating Christmas right away. I know some of you are already thinking just to skip Halloween and get right to it. Uh, so here's your encouragement uh, with an opening that's reflecting on It's a Wonderful Life. The film, if you're not familiar with it, centers around a character named George Bailey, who's a good guy. And he gives up a lot of ambition, personal vision, and dreams to pour out his life for his community. He gets married, and he settles in his hometown of Bedford Falls. He runs the family business, which is a bank, and he marries and he settles. And his life of service is often, in the film, in contrast to the more self-absorbed, greedy Henry Potter, who owns most of the town and wants to own more of it. George eventually falls on hard time, especially by losing a considerable amount of money, and he gets at the end of his rope where he's contemplating taking his own life. And then at a turning point in the film, an angel shows up and intervenes uh, in his life. The angel's name is Clarence, which I just find that that piece of the story just to be funny. Because we know like other names of angels, right? We know Michael and Gabriel, and then we got Clarence as well, right? It makes you wonder like what other names are up in the heavenly realms, right? If I had an angel visit me when I was kind of at the end of my rope, what would his name be? Would it be like, would it be like Michael, Gabriel, or Chad? Right? What would be the name of the like, majestic angel that would be overseeing my life? But that's what happens in the story. Clarence intervenes, shows George how much he has touched the lives of other people. In fact, what, what life in this town uh, would look like if he did not exist, if he was never born. After seeing that, he has this sense of renewal in his heart, and he goes back to town and finds that the town has rallied around him by donating back to him the lost money, and everything is restored. And there's so much to like about this film. There's so much to enjoy. Uh, There's the, the message about a person's service to his family and his neighbors and how they reciprocate that kindness back to him. That's a good thing about the film. It shows how connected our lives are to one another. And of course, it gives you all the feels during the Christmas season to watch a film like this. But the thing I thought about, and this is how it connects to the opening sermon of this series about A Wonderful Life, is if you were in that moment, and maybe you found yourself in moments like this where you're just, you're at the end, you don't know what to do, you don't know what, to, where, what direction you need to go in life right now, you're, you're depressed or anxious, you're just done, you're done with this. Whatever that means to you, Uh, If you find yourself there and an angel showed up, what would be the message that you would want to hear? Maybe not even what you would want to hear, but you would need to hear if you're in that instance to pull you back in, to give you a glimpse of what a wonderful life really is. And what I would hope that we would say and what the church and the gospel message would say is if we find ourselves in that moment and an angel were to reveal a message to us, it would be the gospel message. It wouldn't main, he wouldn't mainly reveal to us our human works, but rather the wonderful works of God in history and perhaps how God's wonderful works happen and occur through us as well. In that moment, I think the angel would reveal to us God's work in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and that would take center stage, and maybe even how he uses us for those purposes, but nonetheless, it would be about God and his work that would pull us back into a wonderful life. 
Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Each and every week, you are caught up in a world that's promoting to you different visions of the good life. And each week, it's putting at its center a different competing vision rather than putting God himself at the center of what it means to have a wonderful life. And then this series, and really the purpose of the church, is to continue to point you back to this reality that the wonderful life takes place when you reflect and enjoy the wonderful works of God. And why is that the case? Because God is your highest good, full stop. There's nothing more majestic, nothing more glorious than God himself. And if in that moment of crisis, an angel reveals that reality to you, that will pull you back into the reality of a wonderful life by being reminded of the wonderful works of God. So this first sermon in this series, A Wonderful Life, is a sermon series that is going to seek to remind you of this reality, to remind you of the source of what a wonderful life is and how you know it's to be true. So let's first consider our source for a wonderful life. Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 26, this. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What would it gain to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? The, the question there, I want to apply this idea of gaining the whole world to an idol, I think, that's happening in our present moment, our present culture, and that's the idol of potential. This is a pressure and a vision of the good life that you hear all the time, that you have potential, your life has potential, your kids have potential in athletics, your, you have potential in your work and your family life, and if you just strive and reach that potential, you'll have the good life, and the worst conceivable outcome is that there is this potential that you don't achieve in your daily life. So there's the potential of athletics that you have to put your kids in athletic programs right away because they could be pros and you don't want to, to short-circuit their potential of being pros. Or you think about ac academics, that you could, you, could, you could raise your kids or you could raise yourself to go to an Ivy League school and that's what everybody's potential is. And if you don't reach that, that you have fallen short of your potential. There's the potential of work and career where all of us, it's almost like all of us have this potential to have a six-figure income, and if you fall short of that, you haven't reached your potential. There's the pressure of potential in parenting that if you don't raise these perfect kids, and if you have just one kid that gets rebellious, then you haven't reached your potential as parents. And then there's the potential of the church that unless you are part of a church or are leading a church, of several thousand people across different campuses throughout the globe, you haven't reached your potential as a local church. Does anybody ever feel that pressure, that idol of potential, that you're always falling short because you've made decisions in your life or, or things have happened a certain way where you, nope, you didn't reach your potential and shame on you for that. You could have been so much better. 
I'm relating this to what Jesus is teaching. It's as if the world is always preaching to us, there's always more to gain, more to gain, more to gain. You, You have the potential. You have the potential to gain the whole world. That's the message. But Jesus is even saying, like, even if you were to reach your potential in this worldly sense, even if you were to get it, but you lose your soul, would it be worth it? And of course, the Christian message is no. Even if we did achieve this human potential and we lost our souls in the process, it would not be worth it if you lose God, but gain everything that this world says that you can have in your quote-unquote potential. We live in a beautiful world that's full of good things within a vast universe with things still to be discovered. Yet nothing in all of the world and the universe, if we were to get it in its fullest sense, will ever truly satisfy our souls. Because God in Christ has placed eternity in our hearts and nothing and the entirety of creation will ultimately satisfy our longings. Only God and God alone can satisfy. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 63, 3 through 4, because your love, that's God's love, is better than life. It's better than life. Anything that life can give you, God's love is better than life. Therefore, My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. The psalm uh, for today that we read, Psalm 36, verses 5 through 9, is a reflection. It's a reflection on God's love and on God's righteousness. And as the psalmist reflects on God, he says of those who know his love, these verses. This is what's true about those who know the love of God. They feast on abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So in God's house, there is enough to feast on to satisfy our souls. In God's presence, there is enough to drink to quench our thirst. Why? Because God is the source of all love and all life. God refreshes the soul and sustains life. And then you have this phrase, I love this phrase, in this psalm, in your light we see light. That phrase, we see light, is an expression to mean to truly experience life. To see light means that you are truly experiencing life the way it's meant to be experienced. So the full phrase, in your light we see light, means that to truly experience the fullness of life, we need God's light to shine on our life. Otherwise, we will not truly experience the blessed, happy life. But here's the reality that we all live in, even though we know this to be true. Blaise Pascal once wrote about our dual condition. And what he meant by that is that we have an idea of happiness, but we can never be happy. We perceive truth to be real, but we possess falsehoods. We are equally capable of both ignorance and knowledge. And that's the dual condition we find ourselves in. We know this to be true, that that this is where we can satisfy our souls, but we remain unsatisfied. We know we can find our rest here, but we remain restless. Or as the great theologian uh, St. Augustine once wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's where restless souls go to find rest. 
So as I mentioned, the main source of the title for the sermon series is not a Christmas movie, but it's a book by Herman Bavinck called The Wonderful Works of God. And that phrase comes from Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 11. And it's this uh, scene during Pentecost in the life of the church where the disciples are proclaiming, quote, the wonderful works of God, and they're doing so in different languages because the Spirit has been poured out on them. And when they're proclaiming these wonderful works, they're not thinking about one particular aspect of the Christian faith, but they're thinking about the entirety and proclaiming the entirety of who God is and his activity of redemption in the world. They have come to know these works of God, and they want others to hear about them, to glory in them, and to praise God for them. So the wonderful life takes place when we know and we proclaim these glorious works of God and his wonderful works in Christ and his continuously renewing work through the Holy Spirit to this day. That's the good life. That's our highest good. Full stop is God himself. But how do we know this to be true? How can we say that with any measure of confidence? We know this to be true because of theology. Theology is the study of God. And this is where we have to remind ourselves how utterly unique it is to know God, to study God how it's different than studying something like philosophy or science or art or culture, which are good things. But knowing God is so different and unique from all these disciplines, as good as these pursuits are. And and theology is different in two different ways. The first way that it's unique and different is the origin for where we get the truth, the data, the the object of studying is different than any of these other... uh, realms of study and inquiry. The origin for the information is from God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. God reveals himself to us. The way that we know God, who he is, and what he has done is because he has told us. I've illustrated this a similar way numerous times, but think about it this way. It's more like when you have a friend in your life and something's going on. Something's wrong, something's off, and you know it. Uh, You know that there's something going on, and you ask them, what's wrong? And they say, oh, nothing. And you're like, "Mm, just lied to me. I know you did. But you can't pinpoint what it is. You You can't know for sure what's off about that person unless they do what? They have to tell you. If they keep it to themselves, it will remain a mystery. They have to disclose, they have to reveal it to you. And that's how uh, the study of God works. Unless God has disclosed himself, we would know nothing about him. Just the fact that we can know him means that in his grace, God has revealed himself. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to pursue him. And, and, and so God has revealed himself. And how has God revealed himself? Well, in general, he has revealed himself in all of creation. Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. God created a world that declares his glory. 
In creation, through natural laws and ordinary events, we can know God's wisdom, his power, and his goodness. And this is a disclosure, a revelation about himself that is happening at every moment of time and every moment of your day and every moment of history to all peoples have access to this disclosure about who God is. Yet there's more. In a very special and specific way, God has revealed himself as well. Psalm 19, going back there, verses 7 through 8, talk about this. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And there, the scriptures is talking not about general revelation, but special revelation, where God speaks to his people and God displays his glory and redemption in history. Special revelation can tell us about God's holiness, his righteousness, his compassion and grace. Special revelation reveals the glorious gospel, the forgiveness of sins, and the renewal of all things. And this special revelation is recognized, documented, and recorded in the Holy Scriptures. And God is the sole author of Scripture, but he has inspired a diversity of voices that are recorded in the canon of Scripture. There's an Old and a New Testament that reveal to us the glory of God. We have the law, we have prophecy, we have psalms, we have wisdom, we have gospels, acts, epistles, and apocalyptic writings that all declare to us the glory of God. And because we have different human authors, we have a diversity of voices, diversity in different writing styles and perspectives and accounts. Yet because the Holy Spirit inspires every author, we have a single testimony that is one redemption, one faith, one God, and one Lord. And at the center of it all is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of Holy Scripture and is the full radiance of God's glory. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So that is the first way of understanding why theology is so unique, so different, because the origin of our knowledge is God himself. But the second way that theology is unique is due to the object of our study. Some of you get geeked out about a lot of different subjects. You've heard me nerd out about coffee. We can go real deep in different things that we study and we can know and we can wrap our mind around. But theology is utterly unique in this sense, that the object is God himself. Can you just pause and allow yourself to freak out a little bit about that? That God has disclosed himself and has given you capacities, the gift of the Spirit, to lean into the deep and glorious mysteries of who God is, and you can truly know him and be transformed by him and find your satisfaction 
in him and him alone. That's what theology is. And it should blow our minds to know that we have access to this and that we can enjoy it as well. I remember thinking along these categories and and being in this um, setting with various church and denominational leaders once where one of the denominational leaders told me that he knows of numerous pastors who brag about that they never study theology or read theological books. And I, it was one of those moments where, like, you couldn't control what flew out of your mouth next. And I just blurted out in this, like, room of professionals, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I was just like, and I didn't even care that that flew out of my mouth. Because it is. Like, if you have access to study the deep and glorious mysteries of God, why would you ever brag that you're not into it? I get that there's bad theology out there and divisive theology, but that's not from the Lord. Why not then lean into the good things of God and the unifying principles of theological uh, inquiries and to go that route and just to allow your heart to be blown away by studying this object that no other discipline will ever uh, reveal to you, and that is God himself when we study his ways and who he is through scripture. He is our object of knowledge. But on the other hand, there is another danger that the Lord Jesus warns us about. There might be some that aren't into, for whatever dumb reason, the study of theology, but there's also this other, other reality that some people can know a lot of doctrine, can memorize a lot of scripture, but still miss something very significant. And that's what Jesus says in chapter, uh, chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's not just knowing the Bible that gives you life, but what the Bible is pointing you to, Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. And this is why the pursuit of knowing God is, again, entirely different from knowing an idea, a theory, or a formula. To know God is not simply to know things about God or to study God. It's more than that, brothers and sisters. To know God is not to understand a theory or a formula. The knowledge of God in Christ through the Spirit is a real and deeply personal knowledge of the Lord that involves heart, mind, and soul. We were actually, we talk sometimes at the, at the Lair household, we talk about these things around the dinner table. Uh, I don't yell as much then unless they're, they're getting themselves in trouble. Um, and uh, we were talking about this very idea uh, last week at dinner that, 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 that what we're talking about here is the difference between, for example, knowing a person through information in a book versus knowing a person through the experience of friendship. And what we have in theology, what we have in the life of the church is the latter. This isn't just knowledge of the mind. It is a comprehensive knowledge through the experience of friendship in Christ that demands your life, your body, all of your actions, and calls you into that wonderful life of renewal. Knowing God is not limited to the mind, but also includes all of us, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the transformative power that comes through that knowledge into all of life. This is the way that Herman Bavinck put it. 
He says, God is known in, propor in proportion to the extent that he is loved. I love that quote. God is known in proportion to the extent that he is loved. It's not just intellectual knowledge that sets on fire the realities of who God is, but it's through the experience and the pursuit of knowing God in Christ with love. The object of this faith, as we look into Holy Scripture and what, he, and what the Scriptures reveal about who God is, is we know that God, uh, in the core of who he is, is the Holy Trinity. In the Christian faith, we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We confess with every Christian of every branch throughout the globe the Apostles' Creed, or sometimes the Nicene Creed, and this isn't a confession about what we think to be true about God. It's about who God is in reality, in truth. The creeds say that we believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, and in the Holy Spirit. We don't believe these things about them. We believe in them because they are true and beautiful and can be known. And since this isn't an abstraction about who God is, but rather the declaration of who God is, then it is fitting that we approach confessions like this and the knowledge of God and our confession about who God is with awe and childlike faith. We can remember the story in the Old Testament where Moses approaches the burning bush, where God is revealing himself to Moses, and he commands Moses, stop, don't approach me because I'm holy, and in fact, this ground is holy, so take off your shoes, stay put, and bow down. Because when God discloses himself and we can confess who he is, there should be trembling, there should be awe, there should be reverence, and there should be unlimited satisfaction in that moment because we know these things to be true in love. In fact, the knowledge of God will change your life. That's what Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, where it says, after Jesus said this, he looked up toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this, and this is key, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The knowledge of God isn't about eternal life. The knowledge of God is eternal life. To know God is to have eternal life because Christ is eternal life. He gives it to you but he also is eternal life, and that is something that can be experienced right now because the gospel is being declared and the gospel is real. One of the ways that I have pictured that how I want this sermon to unfold in your hearts and unfold on our campuses and unfold in our neighborhoods and unfold in the world, so I, I picture this is what the gospel does. To know God in the gospel, it's like, other writers have even written uh, this type of imagery, but it's like you, you experience life, and you really do experience life, but it's like experiencing life at dark, 
where you see things in creation and you know it exists and you know it, you exist and there's some sense of purpose and well-being that you have, but it's just so dark and it's not as clear sometimes what should be uh, going on and what you should be giving your life to, what will satisfy your soul. There's, there's some clarity and you might know that God exists and there might be a calling on your life and life could be wonderful, but it's just a little dim. It's a little dark. And faith in Christ... When that happens, it's like the dawn breaking. And sun starts to hit things in your life, and you get to see them clearly in a way that you've never seen them before. It's not just about your salvation of your souls, and that is immensely and eternally important, but it's also about making your entire life come alive with the light of Christ so that there's not one area of life that the gospel light doesn't hit. It hits it all. It hits your church. It hits your neighborhood. It hits your marriages. It hits your friendships. It hits civic life. It hits government. It hits art. It hits your work. Everything starts to become illuminated with that powerful light. That's what Psalm 36 verse 9 said. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. That's the dawn breaking. And the deeper that you go into the gospel, the brighter the day comes and the more vivid your purpose and your wonderful life becomes as well. The tagline of the sermon series is waking up to the glorious light of restoration. And I totally ripped that off from another portion of scripture. Ephesians 5, 13 through 14 says, but in but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's what the power of the resurrection does. If you open up your faith and the knowledge of faith to truly knowing God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, it's like waking up from the dead and seeing a dark world lit up with glory and truth. And there, and only there, will you find your highest happiness, your greatest love, and rest for your restless souls. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. Is it worth giving your life to, brothers and sisters? Amen? All right, let's continue to celebrate this glorious light in the second half of our liturgy. At Trinity City Church, we continue to celebrate the gospel by celebrating it at this table and through the response of music that will happen uh, as we take this table together. We take communion each and every week at Trinity City Church and how we will do it after we pray and have a time of confession. The music team behind me will lead us in song. And during that first song, we want you to come up here, take a piece of bread, take a cup, go back to your seats. And during that first song, you can take communion as you feel led. This table is open to anybody who confesses the name of Jesus. I know that there's often people here that don't identify with the Christian faith, feel no pressure to participate in this time, to sing, to try to feel like you need to fit in. This is a space where I want you to feel comfortable pursuing who God is in Christ. And as you heard in this sermon, I don't want to sugarcoat it for you. I want to make it crystal clear what we want you to do. 
We want you to come to Jesus. We want you to embrace that light. We want you to get baptized on October 10th and declare to the world that you have been awakened from the dead. That's what we want. But in the meantime, this is a safe place. Just got to declare the intentions from the start. For those of you that confess Jesus, come to this table. If it's your church home, that's for you. If you're visiting but you believe in Jesus, this table is open for you as well. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11 about the table, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession, then we're going to confess the Nicene Creed together corporately. I picked, we usually do Apostles' Creed, but I picked the Nicene Creed, not only to get us to approach such a confession with reverence, but even just the language of light that is present in there that I think fits well with the sermon today. So first, let's pray uh, a prayer of confession. Let's pray. Gracious God, Our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free, Lord, from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which you can change all things. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. We find assurance, Lord, that you will do all this and more because of your wonderful works in Christ and your continued work through the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, we pray. Amen. Let's confess this together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life.